I want to begin this morning by reading our text. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39 this morning, but I'll, I want to read uh, all the way to the end of, of this sermon by our, by our Lord. So I'm going to read all the way to verse 42, but we're going to just look at verses 34 to 39 this morning. Matthew 10:34 Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. These are the last words of Jesus' sermon to the disciples, his sermon on missions. He is in this sermon sending out his 12 apostles to preach and to heal. And he's preparing them for all that they would face as they go out to proclaim the the kingdom, the message of the gospel to the, the cities of Israel. And as we've seen in our study of this section... That all of what is said here applies to us. In a few cases, the application is more indirect. For example, our mission isn't only to the lost sheep of Israel, nor are we given authority to heal every disease and every affliction, but, but still, all of it is meant to teach us about our mission, the, the mission of our local church. And in his final words of this sermon, Jesus teaches his disciples, and then he teaches us how to think about his mission and our mission. Or more specifically, in in this context, Jesus tells us what not to think about our mission. You see, Jesus knows that if we think incorrectly at this point, we won't be able to carry out our gospel preaching. He knows we'll fail in the task he is sending us for if we misunderstand here. We won't be able to endure the hardships Unless we get these two things right, the two things that he talks about in our text. Now, before we get to those two things, I want to remind you again of the hardship that Jesus promised as we go out to to fulfill this mission. Verse 16, just a little bit earlier, told us that we would be sheep in the midst of wolves. Remember the, the little jingle I made up there for us? We will be eaten and beaten. And in verse 17, it says, men will deliver you over to courts and they will flog you. Verse 23 says, 
when they persecute you, and, and we'll note there that it's, it's when they persecute you, not if they persecute you. Verse 22 said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The mission that Jesus is sending us on and, and which all of us participate in is a dangerous mission. The message that we bring is, again, the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom. Um, it, it's really a message of peace. Matthew 10, and just look at verse 12 there. It says, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And Luke 10, 5 gives us the exact greeting that they were to give. when Jesus said there, whenever you enter the house... Or whenever, whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And so that's kind of the, they would give this greeting of peace as they came and, and brought this message. Again, the message of the apostles was a message of peace. They proclaimed the message of peace with God through Jesus Christ. How we can have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the problem isn't really with the message. The problem is that sinful men and women will reject the message because they won't come to Jesus. And remember, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The gospel is even called the gospel of peace in Ephesians 6.15. But the way into that peace is through repentance, which unsaved the people, the unsaved world resists. They don't want to come to Jesus. They don't want to turn from their sins. They don't want to repent. And so Jesus promises that there's going to be hostility as we go about this mission. We have a message of peace, but not everyone is going to accept the message. Therefore, they will persecute us. But that only opens up more opportunity to fulfill the mission. Remember Matthew 10 and verse 18, Jesus says, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. You see, we're, we're dragged before the governors and kings, but the purpose of that is that we would have an opportunity to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. They will, verse 19 continues, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And so persecution is another opportunity to bear witness for Jesus' sake. And then verses, in verses 24 to 33, Jesus gave us those five reasons not to fear. And I'm not going to repeat those today, but look at verse 26. It says, so have no fear of them. And then verse 28 again, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And then again in verse 31, fear not Therefore, and those three fear nots kind of gave us five reasons not to fear persecution. And so are you, are you kind of following here, the following the, the flow of thought in Jesus' message? Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and now he sent his disciples to do the same thing. Jesus was preaching repent, and they were to do the same thing, preach the same message. They brought a message of peace and they were to follow him with that message and proclaim that message. But they would be persecuted as they brought that message. But they need not fear that persecution. And now in closing, he wants to address their thinking 
about this mission. And like I said, he's going to address two things that they need to think rightly about. They need to think rightly about why Jesus came. That's kind of number one. They need to think rightly about why Jesus came. They need to think rightly about his mission. And they need to think rightly about who Jesus is. They need to think rightly about his person. And so his person and his mission. And without those two things, they would fail in the mission. In the first case, they would be utterly perplexed if they, didn't ex- if they expected peace, but then they received persecution. And in the second, without a right view of who Jesus is, they could not endure all the loss that they would suffer for his sake. And so I called this message, Right Thinking About Our Mission. Right Thinking About Our Mission. And today's going to be part one. We're going to look at part two next time. Verses 40 to 42 is part two. Maybe even we'll include 11 verse one there. Um, but we'll kind of see next week. But this week, part one, right thinking about our mission, part one. See, we've been called, and if you've been with us this whole time, we've been called to some hard things in this sermon by our Lord. This section really should have been challenging you in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the challenge of, of chapter 10 is really on par with the challenge that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. Every time the Lord speaks in this gospel, he challenges us to a full commitment to him. And so in order to kind of live this out, live this challenge out, Jesus says we, we must think a certain way. He says in verse 34, he says, do not think, again, verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and so forth. He tells us what not to think and then what to think about why he came. Again, he says, I have come, and then he says, I have not come, and then again, I have come. So I have come to bring, I've Do not think that I came to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace. And then again, verse 35, I have come to set a man against his father and so forth. And then after telling us about this thinking thing, about how to not think, then he tells us and he he closes the sermon with really an amazing kind of closing. It's, It's actually 10 whoever statements. It's, it's whoever, whoever, whoever. And I just want you to see this again. It says, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me. And then again, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me. Verse 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And then verse 41 is literally whoever receives a prophet. But the ESV translates it, the one who receives a prophet. And then again, later on in verse 41, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person. And again, that's literally whoever receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person. And that person will receive a righteous person's reward. And then verse 42 The final one, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his 
reward. And so we've got 10 whoever statements that close these, that closes this sermon. And all of these whoever's address us again on the level of our thinking. Jesus wants us to think rightly about why he came, about who he is, about what it means to receive him, and of the nature of reward. And that's kind of what we see in this context all the way to verse 42. Jesus wants us to think rightly about why he came, who he is, what it means to receive him, and the nature of reward. You see, how we think is critical. It's really of, of utmost importance. And, and I know like every week I come and I say something is of utmost importance as we look at a, a particular passage. Every, every message and, and really every, every word from God is vital and, and important. And, and we need to, to heed critically uh, Whatever, whatever the word of God says, right? We're, we're talking about things of life and death, heaven or hell. But especially here where Jesus addresses our thinking, it's so important in the Christian life how we think. We need to learn to think according to God's word. We need to think about everything that happens in the world. Everything that, that's going on in the world, we need to think about mankind, we need to think about God, we need to think about every circumstance of life, everything that happens according to the truth of God as revealed in his word. Someone has kind of put it like this, we need to think God's thoughts after him. And that's the idea of, of letting scripture renew our minds. We learn to think God's thoughts after him. God has revealed in his word what he thinks. And we need to take those same thoughts as our own. You see, Christianity is a thinking religion. We need to think according to the truth. God is true. Everything that comes from God is true. Jesus Christ said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the more our thinking is renewed by the truth, the more we will be like Christ. We will respond like him and act like him and react like him if we first learn to think like him and to think the way that he taught us to think. Now, of course, we're not interested in, in just merely thinking as though it's just it's something that's going on in our mind. Jesus is the truth and the life. And so truth and life are inseparable. They, they go together. As we think according to the way that God has taught us to think, we're also going to act the way that he has taught us to act. But we have to start with the thinking. To live the life that Christ requires of us, um, Paul says we, we need to have in 1 Corinthians 2.16, we need the mind of Christ. Sanctification or or holiness, or, or growing to be like Christ, requires what Scripture calls the renewing of our minds. And that's why week after week we gather to listen to the preaching of God's Word so that we can align our thinking with what God says. And today, Jesus is going to explicitly tell us what not to think and what to think about why He came. And that's an interesting saying to think about. Jesus speaks about himself as coming, that's not the way that normally people talk, right? Jesus eternally existed as God and he came to earth for a specific purpose. Jesus came in a unique way from all other people because he was born of the Virgin Mary. 
And he's going to tell us about why he came. He, and, and, and the reason that he's doing this, again, is to set our expectations straight when we go out into the world to make disciples. When we go and, and take this mission, take his mission upon ourselves, he wants us to think rightly and set our expectations in the right place so that we don't get discouraged as we go. What should we expect to happen when we call the world to turn from their sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ? What do we expect to happen? And then secondly, he's going to tell us about what to think of him. And he does this by way of this comparison. He puts himself and following him up against father and mother, son and daughter. He puts himself up against the cross and against what he calls finding life. And so we're going to ask ourselves also this morning, what do we think about Jesus in comparison to other things that we could potentially love in this world? What, where does Jesus rate on the scale as we look at him and think about him? And so I called this, as we look at this in the outline, I called this two mission-destroying thoughts every disciple must avoid. Two mission-destroying thoughts Every disciple must avoid. There's, there's things that we must not think as we go about the mission that Jesus has called us to in this passage. As we go and proclaim the gospel, if we think this way, it's going to destroy the mission. And so we must avoid thinking these things. And the first thing that we're going to see that we need to avoid thinking is we must not think that Jesus came to bring peace. That's in verses 34 to 36. We must not think that Jesus came to bring peace. And then secondly, we must not think that peace is worth more than Jesus Christ. We must not think that peace is worth more than Jesus. And so let's look at this. Number one, the first mission-destroying thought that we need to avoid, we must not think that Jesus came to bring peace. And again, that's in verses 34 to 36. We must not think Jesus came to bring peace. And this might be a bit surprising at first. In fact, I bet if I kind of could have interviewed you as you came in this morning and I asked you, did Jesus come to bring peace? I bet you most of you would have said, yes, he did. And in fact, before I studied this passage, I probably would have said the exact same thing. I would have said, yes, Jesus came to bring peace. But look at it again, verse 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And this is a commandment for us. Do not think. Jesus is forbidding us from thinking that he came to bring peace. We're not even to think it. That's kind of like a strong way to say, don't even think that I came to bring peace because I didn't come to bring peace. And what makes this surprising, perhaps, is that we often think about Jesus as having come to bring peace. And in fact, I want you to just turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to go to Luke chapter 2, and I want to look at verses 8 to 14 there. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is Messiah the Lord. 
And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased or with whom he is pleased. And so the good news of great joy for all the people is the news of the Savior's birth. And the heavenly host, when they come and and worship God, they pronounce that there is now going to be peace on earth through this coming Messiah who is going to bring peace. And and at least he's going to bring peace among those with whom God is pleased. The gospel message is that your sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ and that through him you can have peace with God. That's the, the good news of the gospel. Around this kind of Christmas time as well, we often read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Isaiah 9, 6 refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And then verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, his, his government is going to be marked by peace and he's going to reign over the world forever with justice and righteousness. And, and this one tells us not to think that he came to bring peace. And so what do we make of this? Remember too, as we think about this, that his disciples greeted each place that they, they entered with a greeting of peace and they offered peace to the household. And so what is Jesus saying? Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Because ultimately, as we know and as we just read, he will bring peace to the earth. When he returns, he will establish his government and bring in everlasting peace. But what Jesus is dealing with in the context of Matthew chapter 10 is our expectations. It's not that he won't bring peace. He, he will bring peace. But here's the thing, and, and here's the idea in the context. He won't bring peace yet. At least not necessarily. Not in every case. Not everyone will repent. That's the idea here. Not everyone's going to repent. Not everyone is going to believe. One day, every knee will bow. One day, everyone will confess that Christ is Lord. One day, there will be peace through the Lord Jesus Christ, over this whole globe. But what Jesus is saying is that that day is not yet today. And so don't expect that. Don't go preaching the gospel thinking that everything's going to turn out rosy and everyone's going to love you and respect you. Don't don't go out into the world trying to be faithful to Jesus Christ and just think everything's going to go wonderfully and there's going to be peace and everyone's going to repent and rejoice and worship the Savior and turn from their sins. Don't think that Jesus came to tame the wolves and make them vegetarian, right? Remember we were sent out as, as uh, sheep among the wolves? Now one day the wolves actually will be vegetarian and you can see that in Isaiah 11.6 where it says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so there is a day coming where peace will happen, but Jesus is telling us that day is not yet. And until that day, we are sent out as sheep for the slaughter. And that wording, sheep for the slaughter, that comes from Psalm 44, 22, also quoted in, in Romans 8, 36. Romans 8, 36 says this, As it is written, For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And so as we live for Jesus' sake and proclaim the gospel to the lost world, some people will get saved. But Jesus doesn't want us to think that everyone will. If we think that he came to accomplish peace, we're we're soon going to begin to think that he failed or that he's somehow failing. As we go and see that not everyone repents, he, he came, he says, not to bring peace, but a sword. He came to bring a sword and not a literal sword. Jesus didn't come as a soldier. Jesus didn't come as a ninja or a samurai. The, the sword represents conflict or division. Jesus came to separate. He came to create conflict between true believers, true followers of him, true disciples, and the rest of the unregenerate world. Faithfulness to Jesus will create division. And when you see division and persecution between true disciples and the unsaved, what Jesus wants us to think is that's exactly what he came to do. We should almost think, praise God, we should rejoice because, not because of the conflict itself, but because Jesus is accomplishing the very thing that he came to do. Again, in verse 35 of our text, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Verse 35 and 36 are actually a quote from uh, the book of Micah chapter 7. And actually, I'd have you just turn there to Micah chapter 7. So it goes Jonah, Micah, Nahum in the, in the minor prophets if you're looking for Micah chapter 7. In the context of, of, of Micah here, Israel has become so corrupt that it, it isn't safe to trust anyone. Not even your own family members are safe because of the ungodliness of the nation. And so if we start at verse 1, Micah says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. He says, The godly has perished from the earth. And, and I'll just stop there. You kind of got to think about verse 1 a little bit. The, the idea here is that, that Micah has nothing or nobody, just like when the, a fruit tree has been fully picked and there's, there's no fruit on the tree. Micah has no godly people with him in the world that he can kind of look to. And so he says, Woe is me, the, the godly has perished from the earth. There's, there's no righteousness, there's no godliness left on the tree of Israel. So verse 2 says, The godly has perished from the earth, 
There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each one hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. And then verse 6 is what Jesus refers to. Verse 6, it says, For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Now by using this verse in Matthew 10, Jesus is saying a a couple things here. He's saying, I have come to cause the kind of division that Micah spoke about and, and the kind of division that Micah himself experienced as he proclaimed the word of the Lord to Israel. And he's telling his apostles, Israel is as wicked as they were in Micah's day. And then he's telling us as well that the world is a wicked place full of wicked people and you and I are like the prophet Micah declaring the word of the Lord to them. And in some sense then, like Micah and all the prophets, we will cause division as we serve the Lord. Now this is something that I I haven't really spoken of in our our study of Matthew, but I, I will now. Jesus Jesus sees a connection between the ministry of the church or of his disciples and and the ministry of the prophets in the Old Testament. You see, in many ways, we're going to be like the prophets in the Old Testament. We have a message from the Lord, just like they did. We have a message to the people of the world in our day, just like the prophets had a message to the people of the world in their day. We have a lifestyle of righteousness like the prophets did before us. And we will with that also be persecuted and rewarded like they were. And so there's this sort of continuity between the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles that to a, a maybe a little bit of a lesser extent also extends to us because we're not going to write scripture like they did, right? The, the prophets wrote scripture. The apostles also wrote scripture, we're not going to do that, but, but we have a message and a commitment to live for the Lord, even like the prophets did, and even unto persecution in the same way that they were persecuted. And to kind of just see this connection a little bit earlier, I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 5, and, and we've, we've kind of con- jumped back here often as we looked at chapter 10, but Matthew 5, verse 11, Jesus had said there in, in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then if we go back to our text, Matthew 10, and we just kind of look to the next verse, verse 41. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And so again, there's this connection between our life and ministry and the life and ministry of the prophets. 
There's a connection between our reward and their reward. But, but with that connection, we're also going to see a result similar to the result that the prophets saw. Were the prophets persecuted? Well, we will be too. Were the prophets effective witnesses? Were they successful in their ministry? Well, we will have that as well. But we're not to think, Jesus tells us, that everyone's going to repent and that you'll have peace. Jesus came to show us, um, sorry, Jesus came to use us to show the sinfulness of man as well as to save some of them. And so as we go, we're going to see the, the sinfulness of man as they persecute us, but we're also going to see some people get saved, just like the prophets also saw. But we can't leave these verses without noting that it's particularly the family that's divided in Matthew 34, 10, 34 to 36. You know, the, the very place where peace would be most expected and, and, and honestly, where peace would be most desired, right? Where do you want to have peace? With your family, with those closest to you. But in that very place where we would most expect it and most want it, Jesus says there's going to be division because of him. And so we shouldn't be surprised when this happens. We should expect this hostility even from our family as we are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this this hostility isn't because we are rude in any way. It's not because we're unkind. It's not anything like that. Jesus is going to teach us later in this gospel to honor our father and our mother. But we expect this hostility simply because we stand with Jesus Christ and we are obedient to him and we live, as we see in verse 39 of our text, we live for his sake. And so the first mission-destroying thought we must avoid is this idea that Jesus came to bring peace. Do not think that I came to bring peace. And then secondly, and as we get into verses 37 to 39 here, we must not think that peace is worth more than Jesus. Do not think that peace is worth more than Jesus. You see, if Jesus came to set a man against his father, and, and, uh, you know, and, and all of what we see there, a, a, man, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. If a person's enemies are going to be those of his own household, if he came to make this separation between family members, and again, it's by saving some and making them like him, and if there's going to be this separation between believers and unbelievers, even to our own families then we believers are going to need an extraordinary love for Jesus Christ and an extraordinary commitment to him. See, the only way to persevere through the persecution and the separation is by thinking correctly about who Jesus is. If we value Christ rightly, then everything else should pretty much fall into place. But if we don't, if we don't have the right perspective on Jesus Christ, then we won't be able to be his disciples and to follow him to this point. In these verses, in these verses, Jesus tells us the way that, that we must think about him and the way that we need to think about serving him. And so the question of this section is is really something along these lines. How 
high do you value Jesus Christ? How high do you value Christ? How important is it to serve him and do his will in comparison to the other desires of your life? That's what these verses are asking us. How important is it to serve Christ? How important is is doing what he wants versus doing what maybe other people want in your life? Again, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, if your family's going to forsake you because of Christ, you're going to need to have a love for Jesus beyond the love for your family. We must love Jesus more than our fathers or our mothers or our children or anything. Jesus is calling us here to love him more than father, more than mother, more than son, more than a daughter. This is one of the most remarkable things that Jesus demands. Jesus demands for himself really our highest love. Even that beyond that of our family. And that shows us, as we think about it, that Jesus knows who he is. See, Jesus knows that he is greater than all and worthy of our love. And he presents himself to his disciples in that way. Jesus says, if our love for him is not greater than our love for our family, then we are not worthy of him. And the idea here is that we do not deserve to belong to him if we think that way. We never deserve salvation. And this isn't about meriting or or earning anything, this idea of not being worthy of him. But if we don't love more Jesus more than our family, then our view of Jesus doesn't correspond to who Jesus really is. That word worthy was used to compare the, the value of things on, a, on like an old-fashioned balanced scale. You kind of know those ones, you put something on one end and it goes up and down. Um, and so there's this comparison balance here. When something was worthy, it had the same weight so that they balanced each other out. Or when... When something was worthy, they, they had the same value, whether even if they were different things. And so if our view of Jesus isn't higher than everything else, then our view of Jesus isn't worthy of him. It's not, we're not thinking enough about Jesus Christ. If we love something else higher than Jesus, we need to bring our view of him up to make it balanced or on scale with who he really is. And what Jesus is claiming then is the highest place on the scale. Our our deepest affection should be for him because he is the most valuable. And when you think about all the people in your life, and I want you to just think about all the people in your life right now, whether your parents or children, those people would, would typically be number one, right? If parents and children, that's kind of the highest family relations, they would typically be number one on the scale. But Jesus says, if we don't love him more than that, then we are esteeming him too low. We're thinking too low about Jesus. I think it's helpful to kind of put it that way. It's not anything about the family. It's about the greatness of Christ. 
And so we need to avoid this thought that it's, it's better to have peace in our family than it is to be faithful to the mission. No, instead it's better to love Christ and serve him even if it causes strife with our closest family members or friends. But then Jesus goes even further in verses 38 and 39. Verse 38 says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now this is the first mention of the cross in Matthew's gospel. And it's not even speaking about Jesus on the cross, it's speaking about us. We are to take up our cross and follow him. Now, what does it mean to take up our cross? And to think about that, what we need to do is we need to think, what would the disciples have thought when Jesus said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. See, the cross was a horrible method of capital punishment, a horrible way to, to execute somebody, to put them to death for their, their crimes that they did against the state or against society. And crucifixion was reserved for slaves and the worst criminals. Roman citizens were exempt from being killed on the cross. If, if a Roman citizen had to be killed, I, I believe they would have been beheaded, but I know for sure that they were exempt from being killed on a cross. It, it was viewed as too horrible of death for a citizen of Rome. And the, so the, the soon-to-be-executed man, right, the sentenced man who is guilty, would, would be strapped to a, a cross beam that, that would just kind of go across like this. He'd be strapped to this beam and I tried to figure out today and learn this week how big this crossbeam was. I always kind of picture a railroad tie, but I couldn't find anything on it. But it would have, it would have been enough to, big enough to carry the weight of a man, the, the full weight of a man as he hung on this cross. And so they would, they would be strapped to this crossbeam and they would be paraded through town. But before that, they would be whipped to the point of bleeding. And that was almost like a merciful thing because if they could bleed to death, then they would die sooner and wouldn't have to go through the, the excruciating pain of the cross. But they would be whipped to the point of bleeding and then this heavy cross beam would be tied over their back, across their arms, and then they'd be paraded through town where they would come to the upright portion of the cross, the part, the part that stands up, straight up and down, and they would come to that place and then they would be tied again or sometimes, and, and not as often, but nailed to the cross through their hands and through their feet or, or just sometimes just merely tied to the cross. Of course, we know Jesus was nailed to the cross. But then they'd be mounted to the upright pole where they would kind of hang there until they died. Now the uprights weren't super high, but it was high enough that the man would be off of the ground, but, but not not super high off the ground like we often see in pictures. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, whoever does not take his cross, the apostles would have thought of a, a march to their death, following Jesus all the way to the point of death. Now he already told them of the persecution that they would endure as they went out and proclaimed the gospel. They would endure flogging and courts and standing before governors for his sake, but now he says, or actually, look at verse 21, just, as, just to kind of see that again. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put 
to death. And so he's already told us that, that we would, or at least some of us, would be put to death for his sake. And now he says that that death might even be death on a cross. And so this is important, to, and, and we need to really wrestle with this. In order to follow Jesus Christ, we need to be prepared to follow him all the way to death. We need to be prepared to die for Jesus Christ. That's what he calls us to in this section. And so as the disciples would think about this, they would be thinking about a one-way trip to the end of their life. That's where it ended. That's where the cross ended. You, you, you made this march through town. You follow Jesus. And in the end, you're going to die and give up your life for his sake. It's a losing of life, as verse 39 puts it. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so again, if we don't take up our cross and follow Jesus and lose our lives for his sake, again, we are not worthy. And the way I sometimes describe this is that, that we must love Jesus above our own selves. That's the idea here. We need to love Jesus above our own self. We must love him over even our own lives. And our attitude should be something like this. I would rather die for Jesus than live for myself. And again, if we don't have that mentality, then we're not thinking rightly about the worth of Jesus Christ because it is, he is worthy of being lived for even to that point. And so what do we value more? Knowing the Lord and honoring him with our lives, especially by serving him in this mission and building his church? Or do we value our own comfort and personal peace and well-being? And these are hard questions that the Lord really calls us to in this passage. A high view of Jesus and his mission is, is what's going to equip us to live our lives for his sake. And when we have such a view, we're not going to feel as though we're losing anything. We're going to rejoice to serve the Lord. And so to kind of bring this to the positive sense, when we have such a high view of Christ, it's an honor to live for and serve him no matter what the cost is. And so if we have the right perspective on this, we'll be very much like Paul. And I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. I'm sure it's a passage you know very well, but I just want you to see this again. Philippians chapter 3, and I'm, just, I'm going to read verses 7 to 10 here. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he's talking about losing things for Christ's sake. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says, everything else goes in the category of loss. And I continue to count everything as loss in comparison with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In comparison to Christ, everything else, Paul says, is rubbish. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he says, that I may know him 
That's Paul's goal in, in all of what he does as he kind of goes on the mission and, and serves the Lord building the church. He says, I, I just want to know him, the power of his resurrection, and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so for Paul, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ just changed his life so that his only goal is just to know Christ more, even, if, even to the point of suffering with him and becoming like him, even to the point of death. And so let's go back to Matthew chapter 10. And we want to kind of think about verse 39 now. Really a a paradoxical statement there, verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, if we find our life, we will lose it. And if instead we lose our life, Jesus says we will find it. Finding our life in the first sense would, would mean something like having peace in our families. Or avoiding persecution. Or, or basically just living for ourselves. That's kind of the idea of finding life in that first sense. Finding life is really the mentality of the unsaved world. They, they view Jesus with indifference at best, maybe hostility at worst, hatred, and they, they live for whatever makes them happiest. Whatever they think that, that is going to be a blessing to them, that's what the unsaved world lives for. They try to find their life by finding good things that make them happy. They really live for themselves. In the end, though, those who live for themselves will lose whatever life they find. Jesus is going to return. He's going to judge the wicked world. And those who didn't know him and live for him are going to be punished for their sins forever in hell. But for those of us who do know Christ, we're to lose our life for him. We're to lose our life for his sake. We're to give up everything to worship Christ and to live for him. We're to count everything as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so we lose our lives for Jesus' sake. We, we lose our lives to serve him now. We lose our life, but guess what? We gain Christ. We might suffer persecution or separation from our families, but we find much more in the Lord Jesus Christ that it makes it all worth it. We count it even as rubbish. And when our short time on earth is done, Jesus has promised that he will reward every sacrifice of service to him and that we will dwell with him forever in heaven. And again, what we see here then in this verse 39 is what we talked about a few weeks ago, that eschatological reversal, that that end time reversal, the, the losers will be winners. The losers now, those who lost their life for Christ's sake, we're going to be the winners And those who lose their life for Jesus' sake will find eternal life with him in heaven. And so those persecuted for righteousness' sake now will be prosperous in heavenly rewards then. And so this morning we've been looking at these two mission-destroying thoughts that every disciple must avoid. We saw, number one, that we must not think that Jesus came to bring peace. And then we saw, secondly, that we must not think that peace is worth more than Jesus because Jesus is of inestimable value. And I want to close by asking you to just think about your thinking. See, we're all called 
to be on mission, if we can put it that way. We, as disciples of Christ, we are to take up the mission of Christ to build his church in this world, to reach lost people and help them become more like Christ. If you're a disciple of Christ, you're a follower of him and you've taken up his mission. And his mission, again, is to save people from sin and grow them to be like him. This is the mission of his church. Each of us plays a role in this work. And so we are to serve Jesus by serving the church. We serve Jesus by reaching the lost and helping them to become like Christ. And so I want to challenge you to how is your thinking in these two areas? And even before we get to the two areas of, of, you know, Jesus coming not to bring peace or, or Jesus coming or, or not thinking that, that peace is more important than Jesus. I want to ask you this. Are you orienting your life to serve Jesus Christ in your mission? Just think about that. Are, are, are you orienting every area of your life to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in his mission? That's what he calls us to do as his disciples. Are you thinking about the mission and doing your part? Are you, are you using your gifts? Are you seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? Are you living for the Lord in those ways? That's kind of step one in what I want you to think about this morning. Jesus assumes in this text that we are his disciples and that as disciples of his, we're going to be proclaiming his word to the world. He has sent us out as sheep in the midst of the wolves. That's what That's kind of number one. We're on mission with the Lord. And then secondly, as disciples, we need to ask, how are we thinking about why Jesus came? That was number one in our outline. We we, we must not think that Jesus came to bring peace. We must not think that faithfulness will mean everything will go well. It often won't. In fact, we should almost rejoice when we see these divisions, not because of the division itself, but because we know that Christ is accomplishing his purpose and we are being more and more set apart from the world. And so when we see this hostility, as we try to reach the lost, we should rejoice that God's purpose is being fulfilled. Jesus came for this very reason. He came to bring this kind of division. And so we don't try to make division in any way, but when it happens, we should think, ah, Jesus said that he came to do this very thing. And then thirdly, and and number two in the outline, we must not think that peace is worth more than Jesus. And to put it the other way, kind of to put it positively, we, we must think that Jesus is worth more than peace. We need to think Jesus is worth more than peace. We need to have a high view of Jesus Christ that will gladly endure all things for his sake. We need to lose our lives for his sake, to live for him and to honor him. And so I ask you again in closing, what are your thoughts about Christ? Is Christ worth more to you than father or mother? Is he worth more to you than your, even your own children, your sons and your daughters? Would you rather be faithful to Christ because you know that faithfulness to Christ is faithfulness to your sons and daughters because they too need to be saved and delivered from the wrath to come. And so I ask again, is Jesus worth more to you even than your own life? Do you see Jesus and his mission as being worthy of laying down your life for? Have you lost your life for his sake? 
Right thinking about our mission requires a high view of Jesus Christ. And that's what he calls us to in this passage. We're going to sing now a, a, a fitting song, I think. All I have is Christ. And so let's sing that. And as we think about what is our view of Jesus Christ, can we sing hallelujah, all I have is Christ. But let's pray first. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for teaching us not to expect necessarily peace in this world, although we do pray that that you would save many people through us. But help us to rejoice even when we see division being created as we faithfully serve Jesus Christ. And Father, help us to love Christ the way that he deserves. Help us to have that high view of Christ that Jesus himself calls us to in this passage, we ask in Jesus' name. And help us to sing, all I have is Christ, with joy, we ask again in Jesus' name, amen.